Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sarah Kimmins from the University de Montreal on this show. Sarah, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You received your PhD from Dalhousie University in 2003 and completed your postdoctoral training at the Institut de Génétique et de Biologie Moléculaire et Cellulaire in Strasbourg, France. You were then appointed to the Department of Animal Science in the Faculty of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at McGill University in September 2005 and promoted to Associate Professor in 2011. Currently, You are a full professor in the Department de Pathologie et Biologie Cellulaire at the Centre de Recherche du Centre Hospitalier de l'Université de Montréal. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So, um, mine's a little bit of a typical, typical story of a pathway to science. I, I really loved science when I was in junior high school and high school. And uh, in particular, biology, chemistry, physics, they were always my, my very favorite classes. And then I think starting in, in grade seven, when you're about 13, you have the opportunity to participate in a science fair. So you, you do a project for several months and compete within your school. And then you go on to regionals and then provincials and then nationals. And so that was always my absolute favorite um, scholastic endeavor. And so I, I did the science fair every year for six years and I'm um, a little bit competitive. So I always put a lot into it. And, and uh, so that was my first, I guess, time that I realized I, I really do love doing research, you know, at a very simple level, but I absolutely loved it. And then um, I never had the intention of being a scientist. I went on to do my undergraduate and I really just kind of meandered through my my undergraduate program taking kind of a range of courses. I did uh, the core science program, which is a few years of physics and, and chemistry and biology and genetics. Uh, but I added to that um, also an advanced major in psychology because uh, that also intrigued me. And at that level, I have to say, I didn't enjoy the physics anymore after a couple of years, um, but I still loved the core biology courses. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after that. Um, I was thinking maybe vet school. I always loved animals. And uh, there's a particular set of um, criteria you need to enter in vet school in Canada. And so I had fulfilled those requirements, but it's extremely competitive. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go on and do a master's. And my favorite class uh, was developmental biology. So I had the opportunity to work um, at the Dalhousie Agricultural Campus on a master's and there I would be able to work with large animals, which was the experience I was really missing in terms of putting together a vet school application. So I was working with um, cattle. I had my own herd that I worked with, um, collecting samples at various stages of the estrus cycle and looking at pre-implantation. And that's when I absolutely fell in love with the scientific process and decided that vet school was not the route for me and that I really wanted to pursue Uh, science and becoming a scientist. So it took me a while to, to come to that realization. Um, but I never regret that choice. 
It's a great life being a scientist. Yeah. So let's talk about your science uh, that centers around sperm epigenetics and how the environment impacts the fertility of parents and development and health of the offspring. Um, I want to start in 2004. This is where your first paper was published investigating gene transcription in male germ cells. Um, could you briefly talk about how you got into this field of epigenetics and what you found then in this first study? So how I got into epigenetics is, is a bit of a funny story. So I had done both my master's and my PhD at the same university at Dalhousie uh, in Nova Scotia. And um, I realized I really needed, if I was going to be serious of being, being a scientist, I needed to go to a, you know, a world-leading lab at a world-leading institute. And so I was um, on a flight coming back from a meeting from the Society for the Study of Reproduction, and I was sitting with um, um, you know, a mentor and a, a friend, uh, Bruce Murphy, and who's actually still working at University of Montréal. And he had just come back from um, doing a sabbatical at Palo Sassoni Corsi's lab. And he said to me, you should really think about going there. Uh, I think it would be a great opportunity for you. And it's a wonderful place. And so uh, he called up Paulo, and then I got in touch with Paulo, and, and I was offered a postdoc position. And that's where I entered into uh, epigenetics. So I had experience in reproduction quite a bit, but not on the male side. And um, I had been looking at, at gene expression, um, but not in relation to epigenetic changes. And so being in his lab was a huge opportunity. You know, I was surrounded by excellent colleagues. I was really introduced to how you do what I call big science, you know, big discovery science, kind of at the leading edge. Um, and so I worked with mouse models, this Aurora B kinase, um, overexpressing transgenic, and basically started with characterizing that phenotype. And um, we know that that is an important um, kinase in terms of regulating uh, chromatin dynamics in mitosis. And then we later found in meiosis. Um, and so in males where we overexpress the Aurora B kinase, we had uh, um, a subfertility. Uh, and then we also looked at the Aurora C kinase. And similarly, we had a subfertility. And this was associated with um, issues in terms of uh, chromatin remodeling that goes on through spermatogenesis that led to basically a spermatogenic failure in, in the majority of males. So after that, um, you worked on a protocol to isolate and characterize specific spermatogenic cells for analysis. Um, how does the protocol work and what is the trick to isolate those cells? So that was a protocol that uh, myself and my friend and colleague Nora Kataya learned from Marty Parvanen, who is at the University of Turku, and really is the father of that technique. And so basically, you use, um, you take the testes, you remove the tunica albogena, so you move the, um, the outer coat of it, and you open it up and, and the spermatogenic tubules just kind of fall out of there, the seminiferous epithelium, and look like this big ball of spaghetti. But there's a very distinct pattern um, in regions um, that are about a millimeter long that corresponds to the germ cells at specific stages of development. And so by following that specific pattern, um, which is based on the level of chromatin condensation of the sperm as it progresses through uh, spermatogenesis, you can isolate specific cells. Then you make a micro dissection You take that very small bit, you drop it onto uh, a slide, and you squish it with a cover slip. So we call it squash because of that. And then you 
put filter paper on the side, you pull out the excess uh, fluid, and that pulls the cells out of the tubule. So you have this beautiful live cell layer um, of a specific stage of spermatogenesis. And so the power of the technique is you can either keep the, the stage tubules um, to do gene expression studies or protein work, or you can work with immunofluorescence on those cells um, and look for things like meiotic defects, um, chromatin dynamics that might be altered. So it's really good for phenotyping mice. And very quickly, you can get a look and see whether you know mice you've produced actually have a phenotype or mice you've exposed to something actually have a phenotype. So Marty taught us that technique and it was really important for me to be able to characterize the Aurora bee mice mm -hmm. using that technique. So that's why we um, developed it for mice. So he had originally developed it uh, for rats. And so we made some, some modifications and he kindly came and worked with Nora and I at the microscope for a week uh, teaching us this technique. And he was extremely passionate about it. Uh, really fun to work with, has great stories. And um, we really we used it a lot. Um, I continued to use it when I started my lab at McGill. Um, but I have to say nobody else in my lab has ever enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm the only one that, that would keep it going if we need it. Okay. So yeah. you just mentioned, tedious. Sorry. so you have to, you have to like, it's very tedious. So you have to enjoy spending, you know, days at a time at the microscope. Yeah, I mean it's the Which same if you if you're dissecting brain and and things like things like that, right? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned you then started your own lab, um, and there you started to look further into the epigenetics and spermatogenesis. Um, before we take take a deep deep dive into your work, um, could you briefly talk about histones in sperm cells? Um, are there still any histones? <laughs> Because it's still um, at least for what I know, it's still. Uh, There might be different uh, pro uh, proteins like protamines. And uh, what is the difference then between the histones, the protamines, and what is the ratio between those? Right. So when I was leaving um, the Sassoni Corsi lab, the, the view, the common uh, dogma in the field of spermatogenesis was that you have histones that are left in sperm, but they're not really important. And they're there because of an incomplete removal during um, the replacement of the transition proteins and the histones uh, to the final product of sperm, which has the protamines, which are very important for condensing the sperm so that you know that cell can um, actually leave the body of a male and enter the body of a female while protecting that genetic and epigenetic information. So it's a, it's a very unique chromatin uh, remodeling process that keeps that genome and epigenome safe for, for transmission. Um, but I had been doing squash, as I mentioned, and when you do squash, you obviously have some elongated spermatids in there that are at the final stages of development. And I was staining for uh, different histones. And I found that the cells that were elongated spermatids were actually very enriched in signal. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of odd. I thought there wasn't supposed to be much in here. So then I did some digging in the literature and there was a very um, old paper from the 90s that suggested that histones were actually important um, in terms of marking genes for expression for early development. And they had looked at um, one specific gene and showed that it was associated with that expression in the embryo. And so that got me thinking that, well, maybe they actually are important. And um, I'm kind of a rebel at heart. And I, I always like to sometimes investigate the things that aren't quite popular in the popular view. And so that led me 
to the big question that my lab was basically founded on, which is, are histones doing anything in sperm and are they important for the next generation? Yeah, this is uh, when you started to look at H3K4 methylation in mammalian yeah. spermatogenesis. Um, why this um, histone PTM? Why that Merck? So I wanted to try and modify a specific histone modification to answer the question of whether they are important in regulating gene transcription in the early embryo. And so I needed a gene activating Merck, which it is. Uh, and I needed a Merck where I knew from, you know, the work of Antoine Peters, um, but the Suvars, and that was a, you know, he was focused on H3K9 methylation, that that was a gene silencing Merck. And there were chromatin remodelers that targeted it. But, you know, if you knock those out, those mice are infertile. And it was the same thing with the Aurora kinases. So I basically just wanted to try and modify the level of the H3K4 dimethylation in the sperm. And so to do that, I needed to identify a protein that was really highly expressed in the testes, suggesting it had a special function um, and that targeted a gene activating mark so that I could essentially just aim to make modifications at regions throughout the sperm epigenome in the level of enrichment of that gene activating mark. And so I was at, um, I think it was the first ABCAM meeting, um, I believe it was held in somewhere in the Caribbean, I can't remember now. And um, Yang Shi was there. And so he had just discovered KDM1. And so I, I watched his talk and I thought, this is it. This is the protein. So it was the first histone demethylase that had been identified. And so later I, I caught up to him at the conference. I actually tracked him down on the beach in uh, one of the afternoon breaks and expressed my enthusiasm Uh, for this discovery and, and explained how I would like to employ it. And he very kindly sent me the constructs. Um, and we went from there and we made our transgenic mice. So um, what did you find out about the dynamic regulation of H3K4 methylation and uh, yeah, the modifying enzymes then? So I guess on the path to, to doing that transgenic, we had to look in spermatogenesis and identify marks that are altered um, through um, the maturation process of the male germline. And we knew those marks, H3K4 uh, methylation, were changing through spermatogenesis and that they were present in the final uh, sperm. Um, so yes, that was, that was, that dynamicism is associated probably with the specialized gene transcription programs uh, that need to um, occur during spermatogenesis to make that, you know, highly specialized cell Uh, the spermatozoa. And at the same time we were doing the transgenic mouse, we were also doing a KDM1 knockout. And that allowed us to study the effects and the, the how important that, that histone demethylase was during spermatogenesis. And so there we did things like isolate different stages of uh, sperm cells, focusing on the spermatogony stem cells um, and looking at changes in gene expression, for example. And in that paper, where the first author is Romain Lambrot, who was a postdoc at the time, is now a longtime research associate with me, he found that um, it really is critical for sperm, spermatogony stem cells in terms of maintaining the stem cell population. And so without it, the stem cell population dies out and you have a complete infertility. 
that looks very uh, important <laughs> and i will come back to kdm1 uh, um, later on but then you moved on and um, looked how um, the sperm development gene expression epigenetic control of this is influenced by en by the environment by en environmental cues um, so what did you find out about how the environment regulates um, sperm development so again we we wanted to do an experiment that I thought would have a positive outcome. And in terms of exposures, we used we used folate deficiency because uh, folate, of course, feeds into the one carbon cycle and it affects uh, the levels of SAM and SA. And so uh, SAM is your universal methyl donor. And by manipulating that availability, I hypothesized that we would be able to change the establishment of the sperm epigenome during spermatogenesis. And that seemed to be a, a good route to go um, in terms of likelihood of finding an outcome. So there was setting ourselves up for success by using the folate deficient diet. Um, and there had already been work showing that it was important for DNA methylation um, from the labs of uh, Rima Rosen and, and Jaquetta Trasler, who were my colleagues at McGill and it had established the model. So I wanted to use it to look at, at chromatin. Um, so there was the mechanistic uh, viewpoint there in developing that project. And then I also like to, to try and have a translational component. And so even though we have folate food fortification uh, in about 86 countries, there still are um, food insecure households, including in Canada's north um, and throughout other places in the world where there is folate deficiency. And of course, folate deficiency, we know when women is associated with um, poor reproductive outcomes and birth defects, uh, things like neural tube defects. But nothing had been investigated in terms of is folate important for male reproduction um, and what happens if a male is folate deficient. So at the same time we were using those mice, we were actually working um, in reproductive clinics, uh, looking at men's uh, folic acid intake, measuring their um, folate markers like B12, homocysteine and uh, RBC folate and associating that with uh, fertility status, the epigenome and clinical outcomes. So we were, we were looking at the mice in parallel with the men. And what did you find? To our absolute surprise, I was expecting you know, a reduction in fertility um, would be our big outcome. And nobody had really looked beyond at that stage at, at what's happening to the embryos and the offspring. And the spermatogenesis was apparently normal. It wasn't really affected. And keeping in mind that mice are incredibly good producers of sperm while men actually are very poor producers. Um, I was still surprised that there was no effect because, because of course we know that it's required for every dividing cell and spermatogenesis, you have this rapid cell division uh, higher than, than, you know, any other tissue in the body. So I was a bit surprised at that. So then we proceeded to look at, well, are there any changes in histone methylation levels in the sperm? Um, and there were, we just looked by Western blot at that time. Um, we hadn't quite established ChIP-seq in the lab and there were, and so then I thought, well, let's breed those and see what happens. And so then we bred them. We collected fetuses at embryonic day 18.5 and there was a range in birth defects. So, this was quite a big splash because it was um, an early study showing that perhaps the diet of the father can influence uh, the health outcomes for the children. 
And um, so that that really set us on this route that, okay, it's pretty important probably what men are exposed to. And that led to to further studies down that road of environmental exposures. Um, because you um, also then moved on to investigate the mechanism underlying paternal epigenetic transmission. Um, how did you set up this experiment uh, to investigate that? And what did you find? Okay, so you've heard a little bit. That was uh, tracking down Yang Shi, getting the KDM1 construct, making the transgenic mouse that overexpresses the KD1 um, demethylase um, to alter the levels of H3K4 dimethylation enrichment through spermatogenesis, and then look at the, the sperm in terms of where did those changes occur, and then breed them, of course, and look at the offspring. And um, we again, we, we chose that approach because we didn't want infertile males. So we kept those males as um, heterozygotes, and then we bred them to females. And this was a really hard project. And, and uh, my entire group worked on different components of it. And we also had collaborations with Antoine Peters and Jaquetta Trasler uh, and members from her team like Serge McGraw. And so starting this project was uh, postdoc Marin Godman, who was in the lab. And there were all kinds of unexpected things that happened. So we started breeding those males and the, the offspring kept dying. And I didn't expect that. And they were dying after postnatal day six. And so we were thinking, okay, maybe there's something wrong in the mouse facility. So we're having, you know, the sentinel mice examined to see if they had, you know, disease, parasites, anything that could be related to that. Um, and we looked back at the breeding. Uh, I looked closely at that. And Marin had actually been breeding um, using the, the non-transgenics. So the littermates that didn't carry the transgene, she was breeding those with, with mice that had the transgene. And the females also have a phenotype, which we haven't published. Um, and, and basically the offspring, when you breed the two together, you, you have massive abnormalities and pretty much all those mice die. And so we had to, to figure out, okay, we cannot breed to anything that's a descendant from the transgenic. At this point, we weren't really sure why, but we just realized we can't, or we're not going to have any mice to study. So we just bred the um, transgenic males to wild type females. And so they were heterozygous. And so then you have litters where you have, you know, half are carrying the transgene, half aren't. And then we bred what we called the non-transgenics that didn't have the transgene to wild type females. And again, the transgenics um, to, the, to the wild type females. And we studied, you know, down many generations what was happening. And so we looked at, uh, you know, postnatal mortality, which was uh, higher in the transgenic offspring, but still present in the non-transgenic. And then those are both higher than what we were seeing in our wild type, wild type breedings. So we didn't expect that. That suggested to us that something was going on that could be transgenerational. And so we pursued that. Uh, and indeed, there was a transgenerational effect in this, we call it a genetic model of epigenetic inheritance. And so, you know, there were major changes in the sperm at H3K4 dimethylation. Um, we particularly focused on uh, enriched regions at promoters. And we found about 4,000 uh, gene promoters with significant drops in the level of H3K4 uh, dimethylation. And then this corresponded to genes that were altered in expression. 
in the early embryo. And then in terms of the phenotype, we had, it was an epigenetic mosaic. We had all kinds of, of different phenotypes. And that's what you would essentially expect um, because not every sperm is genetically, epigenetically modified in the same way. So every um, spermatogonia is exposed to a different level of the transgene and will have a different level of changes uh, in the epigenome. And so that corresponds to sperm that give rise to different abnormalities. And the abnormalities we saw were really distinct in terms of a lot of them were patterning defects. So we had things like missing limbs. Um, so uh, severe, severe development defects. Yeah, things that you know the Hox genes are regulating. And then when we looked at our gene expression in the embryos, indeed the Hox genes were altered and that corresponded to Hox genes having a drop in H3K4 dimethylation. So that to us lined up that, okay, histones, um, H3K4 dimethylation being altered and the level of this enrichment leads to variability in gene expression in the Hox genes, which leads to these developmental defects. So it suggested that, you know, the paternal chromatin is transmitting information that's regulating gene expression early in development. And of course, that goes against um, the idea that was the, you know, the majority idea at the time that you have this massive reprogramming event and everything is reset. And so that told us that, well, actually, everything doesn't seem to be reset because that abnormality is, is uh, being transmitted in the sperm and persisting to change gene expression. Uh, and then after that, um, characterizing, you know, the, the transgenic, we focused on the non-transgenic. And when we looked at the ChIP-seq data, the non-transgenic didn't have a drop in H3K4 dimethylation like the transgenic did, but they still had offspring that were abnormal in the same ways as the transgenic. So that told us that, well, something's driving that other than H3K4 dimethylation in terms of transgenerational consequences, but we didn't know what. And, you know, at that point we, we had done a massive amount of work and looked at a massive number of animals, you know, literally thousands. And at that point decided, okay, we just have to stop here. And I was a bit worried about what would happen with the reviewers. And uh, we actually got one of the funniest reviewer comments um, I've ever had. I don't know, of course, who it was, <laughs> but um, <laughs> they basically said that, um, you know, we're completely befuddled and confused at what might be happening in this non-transgenic, but it seems to be important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was, it, it was our sentiments exactly. So then, you know, we later carried on with trying to identify what was happening in those in, in a follow-up study. Yeah, I mean, this study that you, we just talked about, or you talked about, uh, was published in Science. And the paper you now uh, referred to is was an NAR paper in 2020. Um, there you tried mm -hmm. to identify the chromatin signatures involved in this uh, transgenerational phenotypes in your genetic mass model of uh, epigenetic inheritance. And mm -hmm. um, KDM1A is, again, a factor there, right? So um, what did you find then out about this um, Yeah, influence or uh, this process. So this, so Keith Siklanka had um, come in after Marin and, and finished up the transgenic project. So he's the first author, first co-author with uh, Sarapper Keck, who was in Antoine Peters' lab. So his next focus was, okay, to find out what's going on with these non-transgenics. 
And so when we we looked at where H3K4 dye was changed, you know, it, it overlapped with where you have H3K4 trimethylation. And so we, for fun, did a chip seek looking at H3K4 trimethylation. Uh, we also looked at H3K27. We looked at H3K4 monomethylation. And it really turned out that the H3K4 trimethylation was the mark that was dropped in both the transgenic and the non-transgenic at the transcriptional start sites. So that to us was a pretty good indicator that, okay, this is what could be driving the phenotypes. And of course, it overlapped the same genes that were involved in uh, the developmental phenotype, overlapped the genes that were altered in the embryo. And uh, so Erin Lismer, um, a current PhD student in the lab, just finishing, she um, cleaned up that analysis and did a little deeper diving into it uh, after Keith had left the lab. And we published it again in, in NAR in 2020 with uh, the postulation that this is the mark H3K4 trimethylation that we think is driving this transgenerational phenotype. And so the big remaining question is why H3K4 tri? And, you know, we think it's this, you disturb basically the homeostasis between the histone demethylase KDM1 and the histone methyltransferase is probably like MLL2 because we know they go around in a complex together. Um, but we need to validate that. And uh, those are experiments that, that I've been asking people if they're interested in doing in the lab for a while and, and nobody really wants to do them. So with my new location, um, I think I'll have some, some time and I'll probably pick away at that as my little project over the years. So, um, yeah, you said that there is like this network uh, that, that changes maybe the histone uh, process translation modifications. Um, is there also the possibility of an outside influence? So maybe the diet um, that, that maybe changes uh, yeah, the availability of, of some resources? Well, yeah, we've looked at that in, then in other studies. So are you referring to our um, studies with the high-fat diet, for example? Yes. Yeah, okay. So basically the folate uh, deficiency work that was carried on by Arian Lismer, um, you know, we had done kind of rough strokes there looking at what histone modifications were changed in the 2013 Nature Communications paper from uh, Roland, Romain Lambro and uh, Chen Zhu. And, and we did Western blots, so we didn't really know where the changes were happening. So we wanted to revisit that now that we had really good tools um, like the ChIP-seq, we'd gotten that down so that we could actually do it in sperm from a single mouse. Um, and we had it really sensitive. And before we had, we were limited in that we had to focus just on the transcriptional start sites, i.e. On the, on the regions that were super enriched for the mark. But now we were getting really good uh, sequencing and we could actually see that the mark is present throughout the genome, you know, at, at intergenic spaces, at retrotransposons, at enhancers. And so it was getting more interesting. Uh, so she exposed to the folate deficient uh, diet, but did it slightly differently than we did the, before. So in, in the field of, you know, exposures and the sperm epigenome, um, many people had been following this, this line of thought that the critical window to change the sperm epigenome has to be through an exposure in utero when you have the primordial germ cells and the reprogramming that occurs at that time. That's the sensitive window and that you should only see changes from that window. And I didn't really think that could be true because 
I know from uh, work that's done um, in the clinic with men that you can improve um, their sperm, their sperm counts, for example, by giving folic acid. There's some evidence for that. And so that would suggest that you actually can reprogram the sperm epigenome in an adult. So we wanted to do the folate deficient model, but this time beginning post weaning. And so we did a post weaning exposure and sure enough, we did change the sperm epigenome. We focused on H3K4 tri again, because um, this is probably the important mark in terms of um, transgenerational inheritance. Uh, if there's a possibility of that occurring outside of the genetic model of epigenetic inheritance. Um, and, and basically what Arian found is that exposing to this folate deficient diet post weaning, you have these developmental defects that uh, we, we dived in a little deeper than what we did in the earlier study. And we had, um, again, a correspondence between where we had the changes in H3K4 trimethylation at genes in the sperm that overlapped gene expression in the early eight cell embryo. And then the next point to address was everything is, is correlative in, in these exposure studies. And it's really hard to get beyond that. And so we still didn't really get beyond it, but we advanced our knowledge by working with Julie Brinda Moore from uh, Matt Lawrence's group. She taught us Yuli chip, which is this ultra low input chip so that we could look at H3K4 trimethylation in these early folate deficient embryos uh, versus the wild type. And so Arian was able to show that where you have changes in H3K4 trimethylation in the folate deficient sperm overlapped 25% of the promoters that had H3K4 trimethylation changed in the early embryo that also nicely overlapped the altered genes expressed in the embryo um, that also nicely consisted with the phenotype we had. So to us, that was kind of a straight line of, of evidence that the paternal sperm epigenome appears to be transmitted to the early embryo, that those, if you want to call them epimutations or epiabnormalities, persist in that early embryo uh, and end up changing the gene expression. So we still have to definitively show that. Uh, and so we're working on that now. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Um, I just yeah. want to, to go back to one paper that I found, and this was uh, just published in May this year, so meaning 2022. Um, there you investigated the role of uh, H3K4 trimethylation again as a metabolic sensor that could connect paternal diet and with off, uh, spring phenotypes via the placenta. Um, right. This also connects probably to what you just talked about, but uh, what did you find there then? So this is work done by Anne-Sophie Pepin. Uh, she, of course, worked with, um, I should mention that Christine Lafleur is um, our longtime uh, lab manager and research associate. She's involved in all these studies. Uh, and she was very important for working with uh, Arian in terms of phenotyping those mice metabolically. So it already had been established um, by various other, other labs that a high-fat diet uh, can alter things like tRNA in the sperm. And that was uh, correlated with um, phenotypes in the offspring, these metabolic phenotypes. And so there was a link between changes in the sperm epigenetic content um, and offspring phenotypes, but nothing had been done at the level of chromatin with the high fat diets. And we were looking at this in a human population and we haven't published that that yet, but we always like to match our, our human studies again, as I said, with our mouse studies. 
and because you can, you know, access embryos and things and offspring much easier than you can uh, in humans and mice. And so she used a high fat diet and this was a well characterized diet. And uh, she fed this to males, bred them to wild type females and looked first at the phenotype because of course you have to validate that your model is working. And she also used the KDM1 uh, transgenic in this study. And the reason we used that, we also used it in the folate deficient study uh, that I mentioned earlier from uh, Arian Lismer. We wanted to see if you could amplify epigenetic abnormalities. Uh, that was the reason we used it. So relating back to what happens in humans, in, in some populations, you, you, of course, have a higher risk of exposures. So you could have, for example, a man that's eating a really poor diet that is also exposed to high levels of air pollution or different toxicants. And in those areas in the world, we know that there are higher rates of miscarriage and birth defects. Um, of course, you have the female side, but we're here looking at the male side, and we wanted to isolate that out. So we thought, okay, we've got the KDM1 transgenic that already has a damaged sperm epigenome. What happens if we give them a high-fat diet? Are they going to have um, worse outcomes in terms of metabolic disturbances in, in the next generation? And so it turned out they did. And those KDM1 uh, transgenics have kind of a baseline disturbance in, in metabolism. So we hadn't looked at that phenotype before. And then when you give them the high fat diet, you know, they're much worse at handling uh, glucose, you know, they're insulin intolerant, uh, they get fatter. Um, and the changes to the sperm epigenome are more pronounced. Um, so their offspring also had worse phenotypes. And the interesting thing is their offspring um, in, the, in the third generation, so in the F2, so you have the F0, the father, the F1, the son, and the F2 being the grandson, actually had uh, a worse phenotype as well. And this didn't happen in the wild types. So we only saw the transgenerational defect occurring in the genetic model of epigenetic inheritance. And of course, we know that the best examples of transgenerational inheritance in the literature are these genetic models, things like, you know, the kinky tail mouse, the agouti mouse, um, those are well known to have transgenerational phenotypes. And they have been reported in other high fat diet models that, that just use wild type mice, but that's not something we saw. And that could be differences due to exposure time to the diet, uh, different ages of collecting the mice perhaps, but we didn't see it. Um, and basically that made us think that, okay, this H3K4 trimethylation is, is a metabolic sensor. And again, um, it's kind of a sure thing project we hoped because we knew the model the model worked other people had found epigenetic changes we didn't know if chromatin was altered but we do know uh, that you know histone methylation was likely to be impacted because again we're affecting one carbon metabolism so a high fat diet changes uh, homocysteine levels so they're elevated and this favors a ratio high in, in SA to SAM. So again, you affect that methyl donor availability. So the likelihood of impacting methylation on a histone was pretty good. And uh, so again, we wanted to test something that's translationally important, but also mechanistically, um, we have a pretty good idea about how it might be working. Yeah, that sounds uh, all very interesting. So how big is the effect and how much can fathers behavior really change in terms of child health i mean this is now a mouse model um, mm -hmm. but how does this also compare then to to the mother and where is the the window of uh, 
Yeah, when does it matter most? Okay, so this is getting into you know ongoing and future studies. Yeah, I also want to to yeah. get, get at what yeah. what you're working on right now and maybe what's your focus for the next five years. Sure. So right now, um, and this has been going on for years. Um, these are very long studies uh, in order to get um, you know enough participants, enough data uh, for it to be you know good scientific evidence that something's happening. So we work with um, the Create Fertility Clinic in Toronto, in Ontario, Canada. And it's, it's the biggest fertility clinic in Canada. And we have been running various trials. So we recruit participants um, that are either of a normal BMI or of an overweight BMI. We uh, examine their sperm epigenomes. We looked at DNA methylation in collaboration with Jaquetta Trasler. And we look at, of course, our favorite histone marks and Then we look at how that compares to clinical outcomes. So we've been able to actually identify a signature that is predictive of good embryo, bad embryo. And so this is something that um, Miguel has been great at working with us in, in uh, pursuing this from um, a spin-out company perspective. And so we haven't published it for that reason because there's um, intellectual property around it. And um, we think it'll be actually of really good value in terms of a tool to use in the fertility clinics. And right now, if you're looking at um, diagnosing male infertility, it's really quite poor um, because they've been using the same technique, which is basically focused around semen analysis, where you look at sperm count, sperm morphology, um, and sperm motility. And it's actually not very predictive clinically of uh, time to conception or uh, clinical outcomes. So there's a desperate need for something better. And uh, so we think looking at these signatures in relation to clinical outcomes um, could be useful in the long run. So it's a, it's a very long project. And of course, the big question is, can you change it? So if you have a bad sperm epigenome, Can you uh, do lifestyle interventions and for how long to change the profile and to improve the chances of a good clinical outcome? And so those are things we're working on now. And in parallel, of course, we're running an animal model. Um, and I don't want to say too much, but there's a lot of uh, hope there that actually you, you can um, intervene and improve that sperm signature and better predict um, clinical outcomes so that they're positive. And that sounds all very promising. Um, mm. So in the last 42 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Um, can you maybe give us a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed? Our most important findings. Or what you would like summarize your, current, or your findings up until now. <laughs> I can tell you uh, maybe my, my favorite findings yeah. that you know, have been really important for directing the lab. And of course, that was the role of KDM1. So that, you know, that is the golden protein that essentially is, is what all our projects have stemmed from finding that its importance in spermatogenesis and then linking it to um, impacts on the next generation. So that, that was the first protein and study that showed us that histones actually are important in sperm and that if we change the level of enrichment 
we can change outcomes. And so that gave us a whole avenue for projects to keep us busy for, you know, another 15 years. Yeah, that uh, sounds very interesting. And thank you, Sarah, for your time and for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.